0: Hello, everybody. We're here with uh, Dr. Lawrence Friedman, who wrote the very compelling book, Love's Prophet, which is a biography of the German-American psychoanalyst Erich Fromm. Hello, Mr. Friedman. Hi there. Good to talk to you. Uh, Good to talk to you, too, and thank you for making yourself available. Um, Maybe we can start with uh, you telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, okay, by way of background, might, might I actually start indicating what Eric Fromm would do every New Year's Day, uh, which indicates a bit about him. He, at a tremendous expense, would have salmon from Alaska flown in uh, for dinner every single New Year's Day, which is his, his love of life, uh, now my own background, I don't have salmon phone, and I uh, I uh, was born in, in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, my grandparents and my father and his brothers uh, came onto the Holocaust and made it. Uh, the my parents then went from Cleveland to Los Angeles, and I basically grew up in Los Angeles and went to the University of California for all of my education. Uh, I became a a professor in history, but also in, in psychology in large measure. And the first teaching job was at Arizona State University, Uh, the second was in Ohio, again at Bowling Green University, the third at Indiana University, and for the last five years I've been at Harvard. Uh, I love to write books, uh, I love music, Uh, I love hiking, uh, And uh, I love good food, as we had last night for New Year's Eve. Mm
0: -hmm. And there you have your commonality with Eric Fromm and his love for food and love for life.
1: (laughs) Yes, no salmon, but uh, (laughs) I wish I did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So tell us, uh, how did you come to write this biography? What was compelling for you about Eric Fromm?
1: Well, on two levels. One, I started to write a book on the intellectual emigres from the Holocaust. The Holocaust always been been central to me. I remember as a kid uh, in Cleveland in 1945, my father taking me to a movie. And uh, there was the, the newsreels uh, then. And uh, I saw there one appeared of the liberation of a concentration camp. And... Uh, I asked my father afterwards, and fortunately he was a great father, he explained it to me, and he said when I'm a little er, little uh, older than five, I should eat, read with him Eric Fromm's Escape from Freedom. That was the first introduction to, to Eric Fromm. Uh, the second uh, step in this was in 1958, I'm 18 years old, ready to go away to college. And uh, my grandfather and I are watching the old Mike Wallace show. And he's interviewing Eric Fromm. And uh, he says that Fromm is the greatest psychoanalyst since Freud, which may be questionable. But then in the course of the interview, Fromm spoke about his diverse lives as a political activist, uh, a personality theorist, a student of the Old Testament, and on and on. And right there, it became clear there were the lives of Derek Fromm in the title. And that launched me into it. Uh, and uh, then when the project on the emigres from the Holocaust was a gigantic project, I moved to one of them, the most compelling, Eric Fromm. And what, why he, as opposed to eight or nine other really brilliant people, one, this childhood experience, uh, and the other I identified him as someone interested in politics and in ethics. And that's been very, both are very important to me.
0: Mm-hmm. So how long um, did you research and write on this book?
1: Much too long. <laughs> Nine and a half years. It was the most difficult book I ever wrote. Uh, and that was in some measure because after Fromm died, his uh, wife, uh Anise Freeman burned a good chunk of the letters. But in the process, I discovered something they don't teach you in graduate school. You can't burn letters. You've sent them to someone else who has those letters. And so I discovered, for example, that his good friend, sociologist here at Harvard, uh, David Reisman, there were about 400 letters back and forth. Uh, And so I had to go all around the world to find these letters, but it became doable. And also, uh, it became uh, many years of work.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, since this is um, a podcast about spirituality, uh, you had mentioned uh, previously that one of the commonalities between you and Eric from uh, is your interest in the Bible. Um, so tell us, how did he get interested in spirituality?
1: Well, I'll get really, if one wants to go early, uh, my grandfather was a Talmudic scholar. And he would be reading the uh, Jewish Bible and other sources, and he would tell me, come study with me. Well, that's the beginning, both of the focus on the uh, Old Testament and on the Talmudic scholar tradition. and I think I became a professor from that. On the other hand, my mother and father were both political activists, uh, spending a huge amount of time, largely in causes like uh, racial equality, social justice, Uh, My father later became a member of the ACLU Board of Directors. My mother founded the Older Women's League. This was kind of the way I grew up. Uh, So the political uh, uh, from I identified with my parents. The student of the Old Testament was my grandfather who got me into it, and both continue uh, to this day.
0: You had mentioned uh, Fromm's book, "You Shall Be Gods." What is the message of this book? That
1: to me is my favorite book. It came out in 1966, and uh, the key message here uh, is that uh, if uh, that this deity or whatever one wants to call it, the uh, in essence the Old Testament calls for ethics, not worship of anything up there, but being ethical toward others on earth, uh, and doing so very concretely. Now, I see another message of sorts when you read this book, and I hope everyone does, uh, and that is it's looking at the Hebrew Bible as music. And he's reading it to us as music. I have never had any uh, such experience before. It's just a beautiful book. Uh, So the mode of the presentation is, I think, fantastic. The theme of ethics between us is what's important, not whether there is or isn't a deity is central. I, I think that's very important, too.
0: So he's saying it's not about God it's about human relationships
1: exactly it's about how we relate to others um, that um, it doesn't you can believe in God or you can't, but the real test is how you conduct yourself toward others
0: mm. Tell us more about the the parallel to music
1: uh, <laughs> it, it's when you read it and i've never read a book like this before um you're hearing you're you're looking at the words but you're hearing the words and i don't know the trick that allows this it's it's just amazing uh and it's uh it's like you're in an experience of people singing playing instruments and i uh, i think in the end it's Fromm's way of saying the Old Testament, especially uh, the Hasidic tradition, which he thinks is very nice, is life, is um, is embracing life, uh, that the Old Testament is a book of life, of joy, uh, and the essential message is love and caring for each other. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, I think he mentioned in that interview that you talked about with Mike Wallace that we have to come out of hiding and become full expressions of ourselves in order to be connected and bring joy to other people.
1: That that's right. Uh, he got it. That was 1958, and uh, he said it. And I'd urge uh, everybody to go to YouTube and uh, watch that interview. It's really vintage Fromm.
0: <laughs> well, how did he expand on his spirituality?
1: How did I understand about what?
0: How did Fromm expand on his spirituality? When you say he uh, he started with the Talmudic writings, yeah, right?
1: I say yes. Well, I think. Um, the Talmud uh, he identified with prophecy and uh, the uh, a, a prophecy of, of love and caring. Um, he um, the way he looked at that and what he took out of it was um, a uh, an activism a, a worship of joy. And actually, a respect for women that he took out, which is very early in the game. His clinical approach was built around it. It seems to me, and this is a, a link to this, so much of his life grows out of his early study of the Hebrew Bible. He's receptive to Zen Buddhism because it's a connection between people on a very deep, humane level. Uh, it's, if you want to look at all of Fram's <laughs> themes, in fact, I'd venture to say they're connected uh, to the Hebrew Bible. Now, one thing we haven't uh, yet gone into is uh, the, the fact that he jumps to the Bible for the first time on a serious level as his home situation with his parents becomes horrible and livable. And he embraces an uncle who takes him to that, and then he uh, embraces a number of Talmudic scholars. And what I think that did, it was a kind of stabilizer in his life uh, over the mess at home. It held him together, gave him direction, uh, uh gave him a sense of himself. So in, in essence, I think the, the uh, "Ye Shall Be As Gods is his most beautiful book uh, because uh, it was the Talmudic study that pulled him out of the mess of childhood.
0: Mm. Uh, what kind of mess was that? What made it difficult for him to grow up in his parental home?
1: Yeah. Well, it's when you have, uh, to put it, And to summary, a manic father, a depressive mother, and the two despising each other, Uh, you can't grow up uh, in that home. You've got to get out, have a different orientation. And Lucky is very fortunate for him. He had an uncle, Ludwig Krauss, who pulled him out and started the biblical tradition, recommended various rabbis, Uh, and that pulled him out. That basically allowed that um, Old Testament scholar to come out in all of life.
0: What was uh, Fromm's connection to Buddhism?
1: I think uh, uh, the connection in part was that he saw in the rabbis and then, uh, made friendship with the Zen Buddhist leader, uh, DT Suzuki. He saw something fairly similar, ethics between people. Uh, Suzuki, uh, voiced it a bit different. It was a emotional, spiritual connection, uh, that did not have dimensions of time or space that moved you into the other person, the other person into you. Uh, it was like the Quaker inner light of God. Uh, the inner light is in the self and connects to all other selves. So this uh, basically, I think, was very attractive to him because it connected to his uh, Old Testament study tradition uh, and the re- the ethical relationship between people. Uh, it's really interesting if you visit Fromm's house in Guernavaca near Mexico City there's a cottage in the backyard that he built for Suzuki giving him privacy and yet uh nearness to Fromm where they could experience not only the uh, Buddhist uh, tradition, but uh, the Jewish tradition as well. Uh, it's it's a very important uh, connection for him. And let me say also that on the way of becoming the Eric Fromm we know, uh, the not not only the rabbinic uh, tradition, but embracing Suzuki hel- helped him kind of calm down, relax, gain a sense of confidence, gain an orientation. In other words, they were building blocks over that miserable household he lived in.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think the relationship was like between Fromm and Suzuki?
1: I think they loved each other. Uh, I think it was very, very close. And when Suzuki died, uh, Fromm was really broke up over it. Um, he, uh, it got to the point where Suzuki would visit him every year, and whenever uh, Fromm was in New York or later in parts of Europe, he would visit Suzuki. They were very important to each other. And Suzuki helped to give him a sense of stability, orientation. And I don't know in the literature whether anybody has talked about the connection between Zen Buddhism and the rabbinic tradition in Judaism, but it's, it's there here uh, for both of them.
0: Do you want to elaborate on that connection between Buddhism and uh and the Talmud.
1: Uh, yes, uh, the, uh, the Talmud is, um, in essence, ethics between people. And when you find that level of ethics, uh, there is a an emotional flow of caringness and concern. Uh, it's pretty well the same with uh, Buddhism, only it's more silent, more on a felt level. Um, and uh, uh, it's very clearly uh, devoid of specific time, place, and all. There was a meeting, Eric, I mean, uh, Fromm invited Suzuki to a conference in 1956 at his home in Guernavaca. And uh, people were having trouble understanding because often Suzuki would just sit there and say nothing. And then Fromm elaborated what was going on and uh, Suzuki agreed with it. He could understand and put into words uh, a Suzuki that many others couldn't.
0: Sounds like a very strong connection, like a soul connection.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Now, how did uh, Fromm come to be one of the most prevalent representatives of humanistic philosophy?
1: Should we take a year for that?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, the uh, I think we would look at Everything he does as a form of humanism. That is, he starts with the Hebrew Bible, and that's an ethical relationship, and he picks up on that. Uh, Then he comes up, his big, uh, in terms of personality theory, his big uh, concept is social character, which means that there's something within us, and I think he's talking about a humanism or a spirituality that's within us, that is shaped by the uh, society around us, the institutions, the traditions of the society around us. And that makes us what we are, the combination of um, inner feelings, inner emotions, and outer social frameworks to give form to that. And, you know, I was uh, in class a month or so ago teaching William James. And James has an essay in 1904 on how to avoid reductionism. Basically, James said that uh, a subject... Uh, impacts an object, changing the object. The changed object goes and changes the subject and back and forth. In other words, everything is in a motion. Uh, when you freeze something, you make it simplistic. I think Fromm was doing that uh, in his concept of social character. That, uh, you, uh, uh, there's something within this inner self that's shaped by the society that in turn shapes the inner self and back and forth and back and forth. If you want to find someone who is non-reductionist, it's from unsocial character. And back to your question, uh, his humanism was was that. Uh, Don't uh, label people, don't pinpoint them, don't give them labels, they're in flow all the time. So that's uh, certainly it. Now, there's a quality from I I don't care for, um, and that is, uh, he talked about central relatedness. And that is... uh, basically a break from Freudian orthodoxy where the analyst uh, largely listens. It's a situation where the uh, analyst and patient both open themselves to the other fully. Um, and uh, my problem with this, uh, this was his approach, is that uh, there's no transference or countertransference for that matter. It's kind of it's soul to soul, which you see in his um, Talmudic and his Buddhist tradition, but is it terribly good in dealing with a client um, is it uh, uh, is it useful to open yourself uh, to the patient and vice versa? Uh, can you guide a patient when you've said everything about um, Yourself uh, to him or her. Now, as a professor, I would not want to teach that way. I would not want uh, to open myself and my life and all to my students because I think I couldn't be a very good teacher to them uh, on that front. But you see that spiritualism, that linkage uh, nature that uh, he came within that, uh, whether good or evil, it's it's simply uh, part of him. And the another humanist tradition uh, that's really important and I think is a much better one is in the uh nineteen sixties and seventies, just as their signs the Cold War is breaking up and that countries like Yugoslavia, Austria and so forth are breaking from the Soviet uh Iron Curtain, uh From connects to those people. And forms what they all call the third way. And, uh, and the third way is socialist humanism. It's not the corporate capitalism of the West. It's not the state uh, bureaucracy of the Soviets. It's something they think that's more viable. It's democracy, um, and it's uh, a situation where everyone eats and is taken care of. Uh, they, push that third way, and when you look at the the political history of the 1960s and 70s, it's it's very viable. But again, we see from, well, he's calling a book with this group, Socialist Humanism. It's the caring for the other, unlike the West or the Soviets. So that's, uh, that's certainly a, a big uh, factor there. Um. And let me throw in one other that I don't uh, treat this way in the book. Uh, the uh, Fromm has a major role in probably the biggest crisis of the 20th century, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, what basically happens is, as he's running for president, uh, Kennedy reads an article by Fromm in Daedalus magazine um, on the need to move very quickly to disarmament. And the strategy here is, look, rather than demonize the Soviets, um, let's make a deal, in essence. Let's push heavy toward disarmament. Let's propagandize the world that they reciprocate and back and forth and back and forth. And maybe they can beat us and give us a better proposal. And so forth. Kennedy wrote that, read that, and he's starting to talk about it as the last several months of the campaign in 1960. Then, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he we know he rereads that article, and then right after it's over, he calls from. And we don't have the White House doesn't have a record of what's said on a telephone call. But according to Fromm's friends, like David Reesman and Carl Kaysen, the same the ideas of the Daedalus article came up. If you want to avoid something like the missile crisis that almost blows up the world, get this dialogue going back and forth toward peace, not toward war. And finally, Kennedy, in his American University speech of June 1963, it's there. The whole article is there. And the article is giving and taking, connecting to the other uh, and try to expand the connection. That's probably the most important uh, connection of thumb uh, to someone in considerable power uh, with this um, ethical rapport between one and another, up the other person, up the Annie in terms of ethics not in terms of hatred. So these are some of the examples. If you want another hundred, we can spend a week. Um.
0: <laughs> well, that was a very powerful example, certainly. Uh, one of the things um, humanism is known for in the psychoanalytic community is that they moved away from the pure pathological view of, um, of people to a more motivational Um, self-actualizing point of view tell us more about that
1: okay the um,
0: the person I think
1: very important, more important than from, in fact I've done a book before this on Eric Erickson who stated overtly, look to someone's assets, not their liabilities build on the assets not what's wrong with them so um, that was there, and from New Erickson. In fact, Erikson's concept of psychosocial identity, and Fromm's of social character are very close to each other. And with it, look at assets, not liabilities. Now, another um, uh, part link or part of Fromm that I think connects today, and connects to a tradition after him. Uh, was interpersonal relationships. And he got that heavily from um, Harry Stack Sullivan and Claire Thompson, who he worked with. And by interpersonal, it's, again, this connectedness to the other. Uh, but with Sullivan, it's a much more situational connectedness. On that St. Elizabeth's Ward, where he worked with uh, patients, it's their social connection with each other, not so much the inner feelings. So, But he took off on that, and of course, because it's compatible with this ethical rapport between people. Uh, self-actualization, uh, I... Uh, I wonder It's this is a good question, it's a difficult uh, question. Let me, I'm searching for information and I'll give you one thing. Uh, Abram Maslow was of course a, um, a key self, uh, person in the self-actualization tradition. Um, and that tradition of course is where you start with basic survival, you transcend that, you go to another level of uh, employment and another uh, level moving toward happiness and fulfillment. I found uh, in Maslow's library, his books, which are at the University of Akron's Psychology Center, uh, that every single book is marked up with Fromm and claiming that he he derived, in essence, self-actualization from Fromm. Now, that's that's maybe stretching it, but I think the, a number of the self-actualization theorists found a kinship with, with Fromm. So I'm not sure that Fromm found a deep kinship with them. It, it's, you've asked a really difficult question, and a good one, therefore.
0: So you're saying that much of... Other theorists uh, leaned on Fromm's thinking to develop their own philosophies.
1: Yes, I I think so, and uh, especially his premise that the social is as important as the inner-emotional you want to build a better world with people feeling better about themselves you change the social situation he's a very strong reformist you know he brought psychoanalysis to mexico in the 1950s and just about every one of his trainees is into social work changing the societies uh, dealing with poverty and and so forth and they're getting that from Fromm. They wouldn't have gone that way without him and his overwhelming stress on the social. Um, so, he, yes, a number of people have picked up on him. It's interesting today, with a lot of stress on the interpersonal, that you have a pick up on Sullivan, but you have a pick up today on Fr- Fromm as well.
0: Right, and that makes me think of... Um the term of the collective so much in the spiritual world today uh, when people talk about spirituality and transcending time and um, and place, uh, people start talking about the collective. And it sounds like Fromm um, has been talking about this all along, only that he called it the social and, and more cultural aspects than the...
1: That's right, and you're on uh, a different label, but same phenomenon, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. So let's um, move to his best-selling book from the 50s and 60s, The Art of Loving. Uh, Why do you think that made such an impact on the readership of the times?
1: Uh, Let me preface that with the point that Fromm throughout his life sold a hundred million books. Can you imagine a hundred million books globally? That is, every one of his books is uh, read widely. The lowest selling is a million copies. The uh, And of course, the highest uh, is 30 million, The Art of Loving. And uh, I gave my students a test. I said, I'd like you to read Escape from Freedom, but you can also read Art of Loving. Every one of them read Art of Loving. Um, and I think what you find there is a sense of authenticity. of uh, It's the real stuff. Uh, the book has, on one level, a pretty clear-cut theme. Love consists of loving the self, which will move you to love another, which is love all of humankind. Uh, another thing though, because that alone isn't going to give us 30 million readerships, uh, is the, on another level, he's putting in elements of some of his love letters, uh, to the, woman, a niece Freeman, after some false starts uh, with others, he finally, deeply fell in love with. And the letters, uh, you know, it's, they're funny as can be. The letters, oh, dear, I go to the office, I'll be back uh, at, at uh, for lunch at two, what can I get you? Uh, dearest, and so forth. Every letter like that. She's in New York, and uh, Enjoy yourself. Don't money pinch. Go to the museum. Eat good meals, etc. Um, the, uh, it's a joyousness in those letters that we would all like to feel in our lives, uh, there. And I think that is what is in there that makes it, uh, so compelling. You know, Irving Goffman, the social psychologist, said that the so-called banal, you know, dear, I love you forever and all, is probably the most important kind of discourse we have. We certainly use it more often than any other, and Goffman said it's meaningful. Well, Fromm brings those love letters where he is deeply in love into a book on love. And that is why I think the Harvard bookstore here, every Valentine's Day Art of Loving is in the front window. Uh the so that's uh that's it. Uh, and then another factor too is that for from love is the counterpoint to hate uh to Holocaust, uh love's the um, only uh sane answer as he puts it to the problem of human existence. Um, it's been a, it was a bloody twentieth century, and it was uh, full on the as well as the butchers, the Hitlers, and Mussolini's. Uh, you had plenty of people pitching to lie a love, and we still want it very much. And I think from at a a level of those love letters with the quotes taken off through the book has hit it. It's authentic. It's what we want.
0: Now, you called your book um, Love's Prophet. Yeah. What was prophetic about his way of thinking in terms of love?
1: Um, I think the love theme integrated um, everything else we've been talking about, really. It was it integrated the connectedness, the ethics, uh, the feeling exuberant about life. Now, why is he uh, doing this in a prophetic uh, mode? Well, it seems to me that in part the prophetic is uh, rooted in his uh, study of the prophets when he uh, was moving toward a rabbinical career. Uh, he stresses a lot. The ancient Hebrew prophets, uh, especially Amos, Isaiah, um, and Hosea, and uh, I think he moves himself into that prophetic mode, uh, which may be for the worst. It's hard to say, but um, that's that's there. And so uh, then he finds others he uh, admires, uh, especially uh, a a man named Robinkoff, who is one of his teachers in the mid-20s, where they are doing something that's both uh, biblical tradition and uh, Buddhism, feeling, connecting silently to another. And Robinkoff is, for him, a prophet. So I think the important figures when he was young were prophets, and he moved into that as a model of sorts. Um, it's um, it's certainly an asset. It could be a liability if you're wrong, uh, but I think that's why uh, he the most important message he offered. He felt was love, and it was and the tradition he connected with was the prophetic tradition.
0: Tell us more about that prophetic tradition.
1: People he admires. After you go from Robin Koff and Nobel, the rabbis, and then Suzuki later, um, and um, David Reisman, his close friend at uh, Harvard, and so forth. They're all um, that. Um, they're people he deeply admires, but they're te- people who stand for ethics and who have some resources to counter the demons and killers of the 20th century unsuccessfully. Um, now, let me give you a, a story that I think captures that. Um, Fromm quickly uh, goes, as the Holocaust takes hold, leaves Germany and uh, by mid mid thirties, he's in um, the United States, but um, and most of his family got out. But there are a couple of people who didn't get out by choice. Uh, there is a woman who is Sophie Englender, and her husband, and uh, they're both teachers. And they decide in Berlin, where they live, that it's their city. It's not Hitler's. Uh, so they they stay um, until, of course, they're taken to the concentration camps. But what Sophie Englender does is create a chain letter for the whole family, somewhere in Russia, Canada, America, Mexico, all over the world, And each member of the family writes something on that letter. And it goes on, you know, uh, uh, we've had a a baby who's six pounds, uh, six pound weight and so forth and so on. And as that letter circulates and every member of the family writes something, including from, from New York, uh, the the letter is an odd thing. I've never seen anything like it before. It's The letter serves the form of a kind of glue that pulls that family together as it disperses because of the Holocaust. Uh, it's a, a very important uh, document I found. And I think uh, Sophie Englinder is telling Eric Fromm this is we are we can be humanistic. We could be caring. This is the tradition of the prophets, gluing us together, connecting us together, and that lesson isn't lost on Eric Fromm. So I think the if there's a hero in this story, it's this Sophie Englander, and I never knew that a chain letter during dangerous times can hold us together. So that's, um, uh, I would put her teaching, helping to teach Fromm a bit of more of the prophetic tradition. But, you know, there's a flip side to this. Fromm uh, always thinks he's right. He's always got the answer because the prophets he identifies with would come to it. And uh, that isn't always the case. Now, he's right with the main uh, prophecy, love. But uh, there's a lot else in life that's more complex that he may not be right on. And his colleague at Harvard, David Reisman, told him that several times. Don't be so sure that you know everything. So that's the liability of the prophetic tradition. The strength far always it.
0: Um so how does that tie into maybe his personal love life in the book you've mentioned that uh, despite his very strong and deep love um, for his third wife he did have he did end up having affairs what do you make of that
1: well I wouldn't do it but I'm old-fashioned um, the um, I think uh, one has to contextualize it. Uh, that is, uh, he's the Frankfurt School, uh, where he was in the um, 1930s, largely. Um, he, with Adorno, Horkheimer, uh, other really important thinkers, they had affairs, That was, in a sense, his his model. Uh, Most of them had affairs. Most were disrespectful of women. Um, And um, with with Fromm, I think he's, this is the sort of context, but he keeps searching for the woman he would love um, with no reservations and would feel comfortable with, and didn't quite find that to, to uh, a niece Freeman. Uh, that is, it's a try and so forth. Now, So that explains in part the marriage situation. Now the affairs uh, are largely growing out of uh, I think the therapeutic uh, approach of central relatedness. You open yourself to a patient, she or he opens himself to you and you learn a lot of detail back and forth. Well, From we know um, would uh, basically be very excited with a um, a beautiful woman, an attractive woman, and these are the women he had uh, affairs with. Uh, it was again why I find this central relatedness very dangerous um, here now. Uh, Just a word on context. These affairs were bad, but they were not regarded as bad in the 1930s, 40s, as they are now, and they justifiably are regarded as bad now. Um, But I think these affairs were victims of central relatedness. And it's very hard for a female patient uh, to resist this. So um, I'm not. I think all of it was a problem, and fortunately, we're even more um, angry, upset with it today.
0: Finally, I was wondering if you can speak a little bit about what God or the term of God was for from.
1: Um, okay, um, this is another great question you're uh, raising, but a hard one. Um, the um, there um, for from a it's as we've noted the interpersonal and ethics in the here and now. Um, but he knows that a lot of people, patients and others, give a great deal of credence to uh, an external deity. And he's fairly respectful of that in the sense that if that worship of that deity makes you caring and decent to others on earth, that's fine. And if it doesn't, that's not fine. And here another connection I find to uh, William James. Uh, James's great book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which says you can worship anything. uh, And it's a good thing as long as it makes you happy and makes you decent to others. And if it doesn't, it's a bad thing. I think Fromm is ultimately like James, Though he is not uh, believing in a, an external God, um, he's willing to have that if others behave decently and and, and have a joyous life.
0: What does it um, do to a writer when you uh, are immersing yourself into the life of another person for more than nine years? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh boy. Uh, <laughs> It um, you know there was a uh, an essay by an Alan Ryan in a review in the New York Review of Books and he said at the end it's hard to tell whether Friedman likes From or doesn't like him and I think that's accurate I think um, that what I came out with is someone who respects much of what he does especially with Kennedy but disrespects much of what he does like this um, these affairs uh, and uh, it I guess it came out I wasn't totally connected and immersed uh, in from but I wasn't not immersed um, I like him and I don't like him uh, that's uh, uh, That's what it did to me, and the bottom line below that is uh, that all of us, we should admire people for what they give us. We should uh, reprimand them for qualities that hurt others. Um, I guess that's what it was like, and it was the first book uh, I've written where I both connected and reprimanded at the same time.
0: Very wise final words to admire. Admire people for what they offer, but understand that they are human after all. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Friedman. It was a lot of fun talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time on New Year's Day to talk to us.
1: Well, thank you for asking great questions. Uh, it was like taking a doctoral exam again. It was terrific. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm glad you got something out of it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.